We are beginning a new sermon series today. As, as I think you all know, we're, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. Um, I think this is one of the most uh, beautiful uh, narratives in the whole of the Bible. Um, and, and, and that's partly because it is the story of someone, J- Joseph, walking through all of life's troubles in the confidence that God is working things out for his good and for God's glory. Uh, As I said, we've just come back from a holiday in the US and our plans had to change, some of you know this, at the last minute because of Hurricane Ian. That wasn't a nickname for our holiday. Um, It's a bit ironic that it was called Hurricane Ian. This hurricane recently hit the west coast of the state of Florida, the Gulf of Mexico, and we were actually booked to stay in the exact town where the hurricane made landfall. Our accommodation was destroyed and we had to make some very last-minute changes. But while we were in the States, we learned of a large church on Sanibel Island that had been devastated by the hurricane and the subsequent 15-foot-high storm surge. And the pastor of the church and his family and many other people in the congregation lost their homes and ended up as refugees on the mainland. On our last day, on the way home, we were driving to the airport and we drove within about 15 miles or so of Sanibel Island and Fort Myers. And even at a distance of 15 miles, three, or, three weeks or so after the hurricane hit, we, we were shocked to see a seafront that just looked like a war zone. The smells that houses and businesses wrecked, cars and boats piled up, even trucks that were like sticking out of trees at 45 degrees. Um, Rubbish everywhere. But here's the thing, three weeks ago, on Sunday the 9th of October, just 11 days after the storm had hit, the shell-shocked church family met in borrowed premises on the mainland And their exhausted pastor changed their sermon plans. And on the 9th of October, they started a new series looking at, guess what? The life of Joseph. And their pastor, Jeremy Rinney is his name, began his talk on the 9th of October, looking at the life of Joseph with this question. Is God in control? Is God in control, even of bad things like hurricanes? He's just lost his house. Even the evil things sometimes that people do in this world. You'll know this. Sometimes people use this kind of logic, don't they? They, You'll you'll have heard this. If God is all-powerful, he could stop bad things happening. And if God is all-loving, he would want to. Therefore, the fact that bad things do happen means that he either doesn't exist, or if he does, he's not in control of anything. You'll have heard that kind of logic. I'm not sure that's a satisfying piece of logic, partly because it ignores the other side of the same question, which is... In a godless world, it is equally problematic to ask the question, why would good things happen? (laughs) And an even deeper question is, where, where in fact do we get our concept of what is good and bad from in the first place? For the folks in Florida, this question, is God in control?, was not a theoretical question for theologians and atheists to debate, a deeply personal and practical one. 
And it often is for us too. Here's a bunch of folks who have recently lost everything. And the reason they are right now choosing to look at the life of Joseph is because underneath this beautiful story is this exact question. Is God in control? Are God's promises good? And do they come true? Will God's plans and purposes in this world work out? Or do we just live in a world of random chaos? Or worse than that, are we all just at the mercy of evil and wickedness that ultimately triumphs? Well, let's consider the life of Joseph. We're going to spend five weeks looking at this narrative. And let me begin this afternoon by just briefly setting the scene. So I want to, I want to first of all, I want to introduce to you a messed up family. Okay. First thing to notice, uh, it will greatly help you today if you've got your Bible open um, or a Bible open, your phone or whatever because we're going to be dipping into the text as we go along. Um, Verse 2, you'll notice, uh, says that this is the account of Jacob, which is strange when pretty much the rest of the book of Genesis revolves around Joseph. And the reason for this is because this story is about a specific family And the big picture in Genesis is that God promises to save the world through this particular specific family. Keep that in mind. That's why it says here, this is the account of Jacob's family line. This is God's promise. Genesis begins, as you might know, with God's perfect creation. It begins with the world as it was meant to be. And then Genesis describes a catastrophic fall. As human beings turn away from God, their creator, rebel against him and go their own way. And and this kind of explains the reality that we all experience, doesn't it? Of this tension of a good but a broken world. This, this kind of makes sense of the existence of both remarkable brilliance that is yet often so deeply flawed. But rather than scrapping this fallen world or wiping out rebellious humans, God in his great kindness sets about redeeming the world and rescuing guilty humans and God promises that the evil that has polluted humanity and vandalized his good creation will not ultimately win but that he will conquer it and rescue people and make all things new again again and again this promise even in the book of Genesis and beyond, seems impossible because the circumstances are so bleak. God seems to do this time and time again. The promise seems unbelievable because the circumstances are so dark, as if to prove that only God could fulfill those promises. In the book of Genesis, it begins with God reaching out to a man called Abraham, And promising him that he would bless the whole world through his family. In Abraham's case, this was laughable because God promises innumerable descendants to a man who's old and got no kids. Again, this is the pattern all the way through. Then God repeats the same promises to his miracle-born son, Isaac. And then again to his grandson, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So verse 2 is really important. This is the account of Jacob's family. 
This is the family through whom God has promised to bless the whole world. And these promises will culminate one day in Jesus being born as a direct descendant of this specific family. This is where it all starts. And I hope, I, I, I kind of say this with a twinkle in my eye and a, hopefully my tongue my cheek, I hope you find it encouraging to know that they were seriously dysfunctional. <laughs> this family was seriously messed up. <laughs> And does, not, does that not bring us face to face immediately with the question, the tension, is God in control? He's promised to work things out. Will his promises come good? And in this moment, it revolves around this family right here, Jacob's family. So the reason I say messed up, I'm not being rude to their family, is because it starts with the fact that Jacob had four wives. This, this is not because the Bible promotes polygamy. In fact, every time men had multiple wives in the Bible, things always went pear-shaped. J- Jacob had one true love, actually. His wife, Rachel. That's why I put a little heart next to her name. But Rachel's dad conned Jacob into marrying his sister Leah before he could marry Rachel. Imagine if, in order to be married to your wife, you had to be married to her sister. I've I've probably said too much there already, haven't I? We'll we'll, we'll stop there. (laughs) that's That's where Jacob was, though. But it gets worse. Jacob has 12 sons. Here are their names in the order that they were born. Leah, the sister, had the first four. While Rachel, the love of his life, had none. But in this culture, if a wife was somehow unable to conceive, she would offer her maid as a surrogate wife. And so Jacob then has two further children with Rachel's maid, Bilhar. This makes Leah very jealous. And so she too offers Jacob her maid, who was called Zilpah. And two further sons are born. Then Leah herself has two more sons. And then finally, the love of Jacob's life, Rachel, has a child of her own. Son number 11, Joseph. We need to notice now that Joseph is son number 11, next to last. And as we'll see, we'll see it in a minute, that the whole family dynamic is shaped by this order and and these births. There's another son called Benjamin. We'll get to him later in the story. He's a very important character later on, the baby in the family. But Joseph's almost the baby in the family. You, You may know that the descendants of these 12 brothers ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the family through whom God has planned to save the world. So this is the account of Jacob's family. And the story begins here with Joseph as a teenager. Reading on in verse 2, we see that he's only 17. And he's working the fields and the animals with some of his much older stepbrothers. What's going to happen to the great promise of God in these next few chapters? Well, this afternoon, Claire Claire read to us chapter 37. We're going to try and uh, cover off this chapter today and see how it begins with everything initially going downhill. Uh, I've got three simple headings. 
to help us break it up. So first of all, we're just going to look at the rest of verse 2 down to verse 11. And my first heading is this, no peace for poor Joseph. I was surprised to learn, uh, I only looked this up this week, I was surprised to learn this, that the, the British musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, is 50 years old this year. I, I was shocked to discover that, 50 years old this year. If you're familiar with that musical, and you, you won't be able to get some of the songs out of your head now if you are, you will know uh, that Joseph is portrayed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Ross as a naive and arrogant young man. Very foolish, bragging, boasting. He, he's, he, he, the, the musical begins with him. He, he's, he's portrayed as an idiot. And this, this view is also taken by some Bible commentators, some of them very influential. I came across one who describes Joseph here as a spoilt brat. Spoilt brat. Uh, now, I, you should know, I want to try and rescue Joseph a little from this depiction, as I, I, I think it's unfair. More than a little unfair. You, you See what you think. There are three things in this narrative that I think have been interpreted as showing Joseph in a negative light. The first is found at the end of verse 2 where it says that he brought Jacob, their father, a bad report about his brothers. No one likes a snitch, do they? Was Joseph a telltale? Well, the truth is that his brothers were not at all the good guys. And we'll see that in a minute when we look at what they try, what they do do to Joseph. But the read, readers of Genesis, if you're familiar with Genesis, will have already seen in chapter 34 the brutality of brothers two and three, Simeon and Levi, who slaughtered a nearby town in a revenge attack. Then in chapter 35, we're told that the oldest son, Reuben, had slept with one of his father's wives. Something his father, understandably, never forgot. There's an interesting reference, actually, later on, if you're interested, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, later in the Bible, where the chronicler tells us that because of this insult to Jacob, Reuben's rights as the firstborn son were given to Joseph. Maybe that's because he was the firstborn son of the one he really loved. But he, he, because of what Reuben did... He, he, he gave the firstborn son's rights to Joseph. I, I think that's an interesting backdrop to the story. But anyway, it, it's not good to be a telltale, obviously. But in Joseph's defense, he, he's not the one here who's done anything wrong. Whereas these older brothers have already been shown to be liars and brutes. So it's not necessarily surprising in verse 2, whatever, the, the narrator doesn't say what they're doing, but they're clearly up to no good. That, then we have to ask, what about the fancy coat? <laughs> this is what was made f uh, famous by the musical, wasn't it? Verse 3 underlines for us the fact that Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other older sons. But now we're told that Jacob expresses this special affection for Joseph by giving him some kind of coat. No one really knows what the Hebrew phrase used here means. You might even have a little footnote in your Bible that says that. No, nobody knows what this really means. The NIV, um, sorry, the old King James Bible translates it. Translates it as a coat of many colours. I think that's where Andrew Lloyd Webber gets his technical dream coat idea from. The NIV translates it here as ornate. But people have speculated about this Hebrew phrase meaning that it was a coat with long sleeves or that it was made of wool, which made me smile because I think Joseph and the amazing long-sleeved woolly coat doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it, as amazing technical a dream coat but anyway what we do know is that this gift properly wound 
his older brothers up. Verse 4 says that they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Not a single civil word could they speak to their baby brother. Imagine the tension in this house. They couldn't even say good morning. That's why I say no peace for Joseph. But here again, it's probably Jacob, isn't it, who deserves criticism for being unwise as a parent, showing such obvious favoritism. It's hardly Joseph's fault. And the narrator here nowhere says anything about Joseph flaunting it or trying to milk it. The third thing is the dreams. What about the dreams? The the dreams are crucially important. In the first dream, in verse 6 and 7, it's like a cartoon in the dream, in a way. They're all in the field harvesting, and suddenly Joseph's sheaf or collection of wheat suddenly stands up tall, and all the other sheaves of all the other brothers all gather round and bow down to Joseph's sheaf. Now, the brothers don't need a PhD in psychology, do they? And they immediately get the point. In verse 8, they say to Joe, do you actually intend to be the boss of us, mate? You, you, I, don't, I don't know. You might have thought that this response might have led Joseph to keep his own counsel and sort of keep these dreams to himself. But a second dream in verse 9 then involves the sun and moon and 11 stars all bowing down again to Joseph. And he shares the second one. And this time even his dad tells him off. Now these dreams do sound very arrogant. I I, I mean I want to say if Joseph had simply dreamt them up. I mean they are dreams. But actually there's a little clue here in Jacob's response. At the end of verse 11, the narrator says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. I wonder whether this is because Jacob himself has had dreams as a younger man. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob had made a mess of his own family life. And he had to run away from home because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. And when he was literally at rock bottom, so at rock bottom that he was actually sleeping on a rock, all alone, far from home, God had revealed himself to Jacob in an incredible dream. At his lowest moment, God was reassuring him perhaps at his most foolish, darkest, loneliest time of the promise. And now Joseph is having dreams too. I think part of Jacob must be thinking, is God trying to say something to Joseph? The other significant thing here is that there are two dreams that say the same thing but differently. This is a pattern in this part of the story. Later on, Pharaoh in Egypt also has two dreams that say the same thing. And it's almost as if having two dreams underlines the fact that this is not, these dreams are not random. The double hit with the dreams is because God is revealing something important and underlining it and saying to Joseph listen up so the point here isn't that Joseph is arrogantly dreaming something up and then bragging to his brothers that he's going to lord it over them actually Joseph is simply reporting what God has revealed to him that 
that puts this in the category of a prophecy in a sense. Joseph is simply reporting what God has revealed to him. I don't think Joseph will fully understand this at this point. The brothers immediately react with hate. But Joseph now has a promise from God via these two dreams that his story and their story will somehow end with God looking after him and the family but this will involve him being raised to a place of authority. None of them can see what that looks like at this point. But that's the promise. I, I entitled this first talk with the word destiny. And these dreams are crucial. This is because in the light of the story as a whole, and according to God's plan and promise, Joseph was born to rule. And the reason he was born to rule was in order to save them. Joseph would later save his whole family from extinction in a time of famine. And God had chosen Joseph to be the one who would provide for them and ultimately save them. The dream and the promise is that Joseph will actually end up being their saviour. Now, his dad and his brothers only hear that in a spirit of, who on earth do you think you are, mate? But Joseph wasn't mistaken here, and I don't think he's being boastful here. He was the recipient of divine revelation that would ultimately be for all of their good. Now, th this narrative, as, as you'll know, is centuries before Jesus is born. But do you see the connections with the life of Jesus to come much later? In the Christian gospel, there's another father, God the father. He's not a foolish father like Jacob was, but he does have a special son. A beloved and special son. And Jesus, that beloved and special son, was also born to rule in order to save and his story too, like Joseph's, would be one of a wonderful promise, a wonderful dream being torn to shreds. A loved son, rejected by his brothers, stripped of his clothes, sold for silver, handed over to foreign powers who treated him awfully. And yet, from those depths, he was raised to the height of a throne. This is the ultimate promise. This is the ultimate dream. Well, let, we're going to get ahead of ourselves, so let's leave it there. And let's summarise next, very quickly, verses 12 to the end. And see what, brothers, what Joseph's brothers actually did. I've, I've entitled this, No Logic to Human Evil. Jacob later sends Joseph to his brothers out in the fields and after a stranger gives him directions, Joseph finds them in the nearby town of Dothan. And in verse 18, they see him coming and immediately hatch a plan to kill him. The eldest brother, Reuben, persuades them not to kill him and instead to throw Joseph into an empty water cistern, a pit, a hole in the ground. And the reason for that is that Reuben is going to go back. He plans to go back when they've all calmed down and rescue Joseph. So the brothers strip Joseph of his special coat, the long-armed long woolly coat <laughs> of many colours. They strip him. And they throw him into this hole and then they coldly celebrate by having a meal as Joseph cowers in the dark. But as they eat, a caravan of traders happens to pass by. And this time it's another brother, Judah, 
he persuades them that it would actually be better to sell Joseph rather than to kill him. For 20 pieces of silver, they sell their naked brother and they take Joseph's coat and they dip it in the blood of a goat and they allow Jacob, the father, to grieve over the lie that the beloved son of his beloved Rachel had been mauled to death by a wild animal. And all these brothers must live with this dark secret. It's all so ugly and tragic and heartbreaking, isn't it? And the chapter ends with their father weeping and Joseph hundreds of miles away, a slave in the house of Potiphar, an Egyptian captain of the guard. How on earth does it all escalate to this? I want us to pause here and just say a couple of things to think about the way the Bible describes for us human behavior. And I think the first of all, first of all, there's surely the reminder here that their destructive actions begin within in the attitudes they nurtured in their hearts. You get that? The escalation, actually, in this chapter is really striking. Look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. Then in verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him. What? All the more. Escalation. <laughs> it's growing. Verse 8, again. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he'd said. See how something hidden deep within their hearts grows into something that spills out in bitter hatred, violence and lies. It, when you read this chapter, it's like watching a tire being blown up slowly until it explodes, isn't it? It starts within and then it kind of explodes outwards. By verse 19, they're almost spitting venom. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him, bury him, and pretend that a ferocious animal has killed him. Then we'll see what becomes of his stupid dreams. You can almost, you can almost hear them spitting that out, can't you? The irony is that they themselves have gradually become the ferocious animals. I feel sure that they didn't set out on day one to do something like this. We shouldn't underestimate, should we, how little secret thoughts can grow into something terrible. And I think there's a warning here for all of us, whoever we are, to hear, isn't there? We should be on our guard and not allow things to fester secretly on the inside. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, if you want to look it up. This is to a church. This is family. And he says to them, get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave ye. Don't let things fester and grow. I think a second important thing to notice here is how the Bible holds up a mirror to show us the destructive power of pride. These brothers take offence, don't they? There's no other word for it. They, they take offence because they're thinking two things at the same time. 
What about us? Is the first thing. And who does he think he is? Is the other thing. Those two things are going on at the same time. What about us? And who does he think he is? On the one hand, what that reveals is this kind of proud, angry, independent spirit that he's really saying, no one's going to tell us what to do. How dare you? (laughs) There's something about human nature that has within it this stubborn refusal, refusal to submit to anyone or anything else. I'm my own boss. How dare you? But on the other hand, this plays out too in a, in a bitterness when we don't feel that we, you know, we've been overlooked or someone else gets something that we felt we deserved. It doesn't take much, does it? For our human hearts to react violently when we're crossed in these kind of ways. What about me? Who do they think they are? And don't we justify it so easily? We claim that we're absolutely right to be so angry because the other person's so wrong and things are so unfair. We caress and nurture our offence, even wallowing sometimes in the self-pity it brings. And we tell ourselves, any normal person would react like this after what they did. What the brothers do here has no logic. This is family. Joseph is their little brother. And instead of loving him and protecting him, mentoring him and rejoicing as he grows up, they just end up hating him and bullying him and ultimately even selling him. And even seeing their father's grief is not enough to soften their hard hearts. Such evil is so irrational, but the seeds of it, the seeds of it, are there in all of us. See how secret jealousy and pride in the heart can grow gradually into something so tragic. Well, Let's hear that challenge, but let's close with something a bit more positive, shall we? And glorious. Here's my third point. This is our last heading. No peace for Joseph. No logic to human evil. But thirdly, no limit on God's good promise. So, the first thing that should be clear here is that God has already planned to save this family in spite of them being messed up one writer I've been really helped with uh, by as as I've been prepping this series asked the question who who is this for it's always a good question to ask that Who, who is who was this originally written for and the and part the first answer to that question is that this was written for the first early Israelites as this family grew into a nation. So imagine this, the descendants of these 12 brothers will first have read Genesis while they were also being given the Ten Commandments by Moses. So just keep that parallel in your mind. They're receiving the Ten Commandments from God at the same time that they're first reading the account of their early ancestors. Commandment number five says, honour your father and mother. And then they read this story. They smashed that one to bits, didn't they? Commandment number six says, do not murder. They slaughtered a whole town in a revenge attack. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. Reuben, 
slept with his father's wife. Commandment number eight, do not steal. They stole their brother's freedom, for starters. Commandment number nine was, do not lie. They lied to their own father for decades. You're getting the point. These brothers broke every single one. So as they're receiving the Ten Commandments from God, and this is like an episode of Who Do You Think You Are? And you look back at your family tree and realize that your, forefather, your original forefathers have broken every single one of them. The early Israelites have the commandments in one hand and their family tree in the other hand. It must have been humbling for them to face the fact that their own pedigree was so fatally flawed from the very beginning. But I think God is really saying to them down the line when they first read this, I didn't love you because you did great. I loved you because you were broken. And the promise I actually already had for you before you were like this was to forgive you and to put you back together. This promise came before they even sinned. God knew what they were like before they were even like it. And yet he planned to set his love upon them Saving them, rescuing them, and making them his own. He wasn't saving them or the world through them because they were good, but because he's good. And even their failure could not put a limit on his kindness and love for them. Actually, their failure was precisely why they needed him. But it's not just the fact that the promise came before they sinned. The promise is also, I I was asking at the beginning, do God's promises come true in the end? And I, I think God's good promise is seen in where this all ends. And I don't just mean here in the book of Genesis. In the book of Revelation, you were looking at it last week, I think. The holy city comes down from heaven, shining brilliantly with the glory of God. And there were 12 gates into that city. And do you know what was written on each of the gates? One of the names of each of these 12 brothers. Friends, that's because every single one of God's promises will come true. The promise was before them. And it will carry them whole. Rebels turned into worshippers. Brutes and liars transformed into humble, kind, strong and godly people who in the end shine with glory in the city of God. And is this not the story of the gospel for you and for us? The promise to us, too, was in place before we were even born. And the same promise will carry us all the way home. I love the fact that Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This was one of the first verses I learned in Sunday school as a kid. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God hasn't come to us after we've cleaned our act up. He loved us when we were still broken and guilty. And he comes to us in love to save us and rescue us. And he does it through the greater son and his death on the cross for our sins. The second thing 
I just want you to notice is that the darkness can never extinguish the promise. So we said earlier, didn't we, so often God's promise comes at the darkest moment. Think about this. I've been thinking about this a lot. The fact that God gave the dreams he did to Joseph. I thought a lot about this. God could have explained things more clearly, couldn't he? Those dreams could have included something about a famine and how it was all going to work out and the reason Joseph was going to be exalted was to save them. God could have told them more. But the way God gave the promise only served to provoke the brothers and escalate their hatred. Us bowing to Joseph. (laughs) You must be joking. Never in a million years are you going to bow to that guy. I wonder whether God was deliberately giving the promise in a way that was humanly impossible. <laughs> They're all going to bow to you. You've got to be joking. <laughs> That'll never happen. So this is how it always is with God, isn't it? He promises things that look impossible so that we'll know that it was him that fulfilled it. And I've got to say, I find it totally mind-blowing that the same promise that served to reveal what they were truly like was the very promise that was going to be the means of them being saved. The promise that contains their future salvation was the promise they got so angry about. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll think about this over the next five weeks. In fact, God even uses their hatred to further his plan because God needs Joseph in Egypt. Is God in control? In this story, God even overrules their hatred and sin to further his plan to save them. Wow. This story is a call to trust the good promise of God. And the beginning of the Christian life is faith in the good promise of God when all else seems lost. To believe that God is in control despite circumstances that might say the opposite. To believe in his promise to save us who are guilty and broken when we call out to him by faith. To believe that he is good and to believe in in his son, Jesus, who paid our debts so that we could be forgiven and brought into his family. And to believe that every single one of his promises will come to fruition. Let me close with this. I was telling you earlier about Pastor Pastor Jeremy Rinney his name, he preached this same passage three weeks ago in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. Do you know how he closed his talk? He asked his people who had lost everything, what do we do now? When it seems like all is lost, what do we do now and you know what his answer was this this is what he said to his people like joseph we speak the dream i I just i love that their houses are gone their stuff is trashed they're tired they have nothing left but they still have the promise. And friends, like Joseph, we can tell one another and we can point others to the fact that despite all our current struggles in this broken, fallen world, that God's good promise is that our story will end one day with every one of us bowing the knee 
to the ultimate son, Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate dream that God has brilliantly buried in this narrative. And how we respond to that dream, that promise today, this afternoon, will reveal whether God's love and kindness has conquered us or whether like Joseph Brothers, it provokes and offends us. One day, when this great dream comes to fulfillment, it will be for some a shout of unbridled joy. And yet for others, it will be a cry of regret and anguish. Is God in control? Yes. And his desire is that you and I submit gladly and bow to his son while we still can. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? And then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great narrative that you've given to us and, and to every generation of your people. And as we think about this question, are you in control? We pray that you would encourage us and comfort us. We think of Joseph naked in the bottom of a hole asking this question, is God in control? We think of these brothers wickedly doing what they did, is God in control? Father, we thank you that your purposes and plans are good. And we thank you that in this narrative, there's an echo of how you redeem the world. And a savior who went down before he went up we thank you for the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his exaltation. We thank you that he was born to rule in order to save. And we pray that you would, you, you, you would just encourage us with these eternal realities. Help us to bow gladly, cheerfully, lovingly, warmly, our knees to him and help us to know the life and the salvation that is found in him we pray it for our good and for your glory in his name amen